Hello, my name is Seth Hahn. Please stand for the reading of scripture. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will, roll, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen and is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There will you see him, just as, I to just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing for anyone, to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Seth. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is great to see you as always. We are thrilled that you have joined us this morning in worship as always. My name is Dave Hahn, for those of you who don't know me, and it is my great joy and privilege to open God's word with and for you today. Can you tell by my shirt that we're in an Easter text today? This is the most joyful shirt that I own, so I decided to wear it because we're in an Easter text. So it's not necessarily a traditional Easter shirt, but I'm not really a traditional guy. So anyway, some of you who know me may know that uh, I work as a marketing manager at a senior living facility. I've done that for about five years. Uh, it's the first time I've ever actually worked in that, in that industry before. Uh, and I have met some truly fascinating people in my time there. I've heard incredible stories of all that they have experienced in their lifetime. All of these things that they've experienced, by the way, didn't seem incredible to them at the time, but only in reflecting back do they recognize it. Things like the Great Depression and World War II and smallpox and polio, incredible things that they have endured. It's really amazing to think about. And one of the byproducts of this past year or more is that COVID, which is this new thing that they and we have experienced, has reminded these residents of the global crises that they've lived through and has shaped their view of this pandemic and all of its challenges. They've reflected back on other things that they've endured as they've considered COVID. So I was talking to one resident in particular who had lost three of her five siblings to polio, and she was sharing these stories with me. And so she was particularly concerned about this new pandemic and the damage that it might do as it was kind of going on. And then she was ecstatic, as many were, when she learned that the COVID vaccines had been developed. And she was one of the first residents in line when they had the opportunity to receive said vaccine. And the conversation with her got me thinking a little bit about all that she's experienced and specifically some of, the, some of the things that have caused people that she's loved to be lost. And it's made me realize that there are several diseases that have taken countless lives in our, in our history, many of which are now cured and eradicated, or at least on their way to being so. Things that we didn't think could be cured. But having a cure to a disease only matters to those who are living. Having a cure to a disease only matters to those who are living. Think about it. If, 
If we were to exhume a body, the body of a polio, a smallpox, or a COVID victim, and administer that vaccination to them, they'd still have a pretty big problem. They're dead. And what a dead person needs more than a cure for what killed them is new life. What a dead person needs more than a cure for what killed them is new life. Two weeks ago, when we were last in Mark, we focused on Jesus' crucifixion, his death, and his burial. And what that means for us today. Free and full forgiveness for all our sins purchased back from sin and death, reconciled to God, justified forever in his sight with absolute access to his presence and his throne. But without the resurrection, all we really have is the cure to a disease. You see, sin killed all of us. And as a result, We were born spiritually dead. And what a dead person needs more than a cure for what killed them is life. Friends, this may be shocking to hear, but the cross of Christ does not save you. The life of Christ does. The cross of Christ in and of itself does not save you, but the life of Christ does. And without the resurrection, there is no salvation. So let's look at our passage for today, beginning in verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on, the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Chapter 15 ends with Jesus being taken down from the cross and being placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. That was Friday evening. And chapter 16, as we begin here, begins on a Sunday morning, forever changing the significance of a Sunday for the people of God. Do you realize that up until that moment, Saturday was the center point of the week for the people of God? But upon Jesus' resurrection, Sunday has been the day on which God's people have set apart to gather. It's really incredible to think about. Apart from the resurrection, we're not gathering on a Sunday. So the women came to Jesus' tomb upon the first daylight after the Sabbath, which ended Saturday evening at sundown. So they came at that first sunlight. But what about the time in between? Have you thought about that? The time between the end of chapter 15, which is Jesus' burial, and the beginning of chapter 16, where they find the empty tomb. What about those 36 hours? What about that day and a half? 
For the disciples and followers of Jesus, those hours must have been an extraordinarily dark time. In their minds, it was over. It was over. Jesus, whom they loved and followed, was dead, and he was not coming back, though he had told them otherwise. In their minds, that was reality. Now, I've helped shape Easter morning services where people have entered into that service the same way that they left Good Friday. Maybe some of you have actually been at those services where people enter in on a Sunday morning and it's dark and it's quiet and it's somber. It is both unusual and unsettling, purposefully so. Our intent in crafting the services that way was to help congregants identify with the despondency of Christ's death. You see, we know the whole story. So we come into Sunday morning expecting to be aware of the resurrection. But because we know the whole story, it's hard to enter into the despondency that the disciples would have felt not knowing that Christ had been resurrected. So they walk into darkness, and then as the service begins, the lights come on along with the jubilant song of Christ's resurrection, and we are able to rejoice then in his bursting forth from death and his new resurrected life to get a taste of what the disciples must have first experienced when they learned that he had been risen. It's a really cool thing, and it's as close as we're going to get to tasting that. So as we look at verses 1 through 5, we are told that Jesus had already been raised. And it is worth noting that while all four Gospels account for Jesus' resurrection, in each account there is one significant thing missing. The resurrection itself. The resurrection itself. No one saw it. No one could explain it. What we know is the aftermath. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome came to an empty tomb, which rightly stunned them. Because they had come for a different reason, right? To anoint Jesus' dead body. Not because Jews practiced embalming, but not to be crude, to control the smell of decay. That's what they came for. And let it not be lost on you that the first people to arrive at the empty tomb of Jesus were women. It is significant for two reasons. First, it demonstrates that God deeply loves and values his daughters that women are powerful and significant ambassadors in his kingdom with unique gifts and unique callings, not second-class citizens. Second, it demonstrates the truth of the resurrection. No one seeking to fabricate the story of Jesus' resurrection would have made women witnesses to it. Because at this time and place, women were considered second class. 
even to the point that their testimonies were not considered viable in a court of law. They were not admissible in a court of law. Why make them the witnesses unless that's the way it happened? Women were not to be believed or listened to, and yet we find three of them at the empty tomb of Jesus as witnesses to the most pivotal moment in history. What does that say about how God views women? So while these women are not expecting to find an empty tomb, that is exactly what they found. With the enormous stone that covered that tomb rolled away. I think much of Christendom assumes that the stone was rolled away so that Jesus could get out. But that's simply not the case. We know from other gospel accounts that Jesus moved through walls and he appeared and he disappeared as one not bound by physical barriers. So why roll away the stone then? For us. For us. So that mankind could see and know and tell of his resurrection. In verse 5, we find the women entering the tomb to find a young man dressed in a white robe sitting down. According to the other gospel accounts, very likely an angel. Perhaps the same angel that Matthew's gospel tells us descended from heaven and rolled away the stone. It was that angel who rolled away the stone so that we could see. Continuing in verse 6, And he said to them, the angel, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. And the message of the angel of the Lord is significant. In that, it contrasts who Jesus was with what he is. It contrasts who Jesus was with what he is. He was crucified, dead, and buried. He is resurrected. And he was the first to be so. The first to be so. There are certainly biblical examples of those who were dead and then brought back to life. And we may say of those people, they were resurrected. But the term resurrected is very likely not the right term to use there. Perhaps a more accurate description would be that they were resuscitated. Resuscitated in that they came back to life in the same body they had before. But not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. Here's what I mean. Lazarus, is one example, was raised from the dead in the same body that he went into the tomb with. With the strips of cloth and everything around him. And sometime later, we don't know when, Lazarus died again. But not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. Resurrected bodies 
like that of Jesus are new, eternal bodies. With some similarities to our earthly bodies, but exclusively built for eternity. And this is not to underestimate the true miracle of raising someone from the dead. Rather, it is to increase our excitement for the day that we receive our own new resurrected bodies. To get a sense of how resurrected bodies work, just read the accounts in all of the Gospels of how Jesus' time on earth looked after he was resurrected. He moved through walls, but he was able to be touched. He appeared and disappeared in an instant, but he sat down and had meals with his followers. It is wild stuff, and those small details are just scratching the surface. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 49. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, Paul says. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born, have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We could close up and go home after declarations like that. Friends, Jesus was not resuscitated. He was not raised from death in the same body. Rather, he was resurrected with a new body, and so shall it be with all those who have died with him and have been raised with him. The angel sitting in Jesus' tomb spoke to the three women and encouraged them to see for themselves that Jesus was not there, but had been risen. See the place where they laid him, he said. Friends, in seeing Jesus resurrected, according to Romans 1, we see Jesus' deity. He was declared to be the Son of God with power, declares Paul, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection of the dead. And seeing Jesus resurrected, according to 1 Corinthians 15, we see that God is the living God and the God of the living. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
In seeing Jesus resurrected according to Romans 8:11, we are guaranteed a resurrection of our own in him. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Paul writes, he who has raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And finally, in seeing Jesus resurrected, we see a holy God satisfied with the sacrifice of his son on our behalf. Otherwise, Jesus would not have been raised. Finishing up in verse 7, the angel continues, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You have heard, you have seen, now go and tell. None of the events of the last 72 hours of Jesus' life should have been a surprise to his disciples and his followers. He often spoke of his betrayal, crucifixion, and resurrection. It's half the book of Mark. But his disciples did not understand, and they did not believe. So, the three women fled, astonished, in fear, and unable to speak, but not for long. My friends, the gospel of the, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection is unlike any other world religion. Every other leader of every other world religion is dead. Only Jesus Christ is alive. Only Jesus Christ is alive. And no other religion can promise a physical, a literal, and a bodily resurrection in which we will live forever. But all religions are the same, right? It's silly. It's silly. Now, if you have your Bibles open, it is likely that verses 9 through 20 have brackets around them, or that there is some kind of notation about those verses in particular. We have actually encountered verses like these before in Mark, and there are other places in Scripture that are similar. And the issue and the concern with each one is this. The verses in question are not found in the earliest manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts of Scripture are as early as 50 years after Christ's death. That is unheard of. And many of these verses, including verses 9 through 20, were not found in those early manuscripts. Therefore, the translators cannot be sure of their inclusion or their accuracy the way that they can with the rest of Scripture. And this issue because it certainly is one, is handled in one of three ways. Include them, omit them, or make some kind of notation regarding their concern. And after prayer and discussion, for a variety of reasons, Jonathan and I do not feel comfortable preaching verses 9 through 20 and saying of them, this is the word of the Lord. 
And if we aren't sure that they are God's words, and we are far from being alone in that, we would rather stop where most scholars and theologians believe that Mark stopped, regardless of whether or not verse 8 wraps it up in a nice bow. Now, if you think about it, where does Mark end his letter, assuming it ended at verse 8? With trembling and astonished disciples fleeing the empty tomb of Jesus. It's not much better than that, right? How do you beat that? And while Mark says the women said nothing to anyone, we know that whatever that silence meant, it didn't last very long. They did eventually say something. Because 2,000 years later, in southeastern Wisconsin, you and I know. You and I know. So they didn't stay silent for long. And the glorious message of this angel unto the women at the tomb is a message for all who seek Christ. He was crucified. He has risen. Now, go and tell others. That's the message. He was crucified. He has risen. And the truth of those events is what we testify to. As Christians, we focus heavily on the cross, and rightly so. But I fear that we do so at times at the expense of the resurrection. Friends, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, without the resurrection, we are to be pitied. And our faith is futile, and we are still in our sins. So the Bible doesn't talk about the resurrection as being a part of the gospel. Rather, it treats it as the main event. The main event. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the punishment for sin and stole the power of sin, which is death. Consider the very beginnings of sin and death. In Genesis 2, God told Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that if he did, in that day, he would surely die. Then, just one chapter later, Adam and his wife Eve ate of it and lived another 900 years. What? How could that be? Didn't God tell them that they would die? Shouldn't they have dropped the very moment that their teeth pierced that fruit? Friends, Adam and Eve were the first among those who would have both physical life and spiritual life. And when they sinned in that day, spiritual death came to them. When they sinned, spiritual death came to them, severing the very life of God from them and leading them to rebel against God and blame God and lie to God, fear God and hide from God. 
evidences of spiritual death. And spiritual death always leads to physical death. So when sin entered into the world, so did its consequence. And from that very first sin, every descendant of Adam and Eve, that's you and me and everybody else, was and will be born physically alive, but spiritually dead. We are born physically alive, but spiritually dead to the God who gave us life. And in the same way that we were made physically alive, we need to be made spiritually alive. We need to be born of the Spirit. That's what it means to be born again. There's no mystery in that. And the only spiritual life available to us is that life which God offers us in Christ's resurrection. It's the only life available. Sin killed you and me. But in the resurrection, Christ makes us alive. The testimony of every Christian is, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. If you need to read it again, I have it tattooed on my forearm. That, my friend, is the power of the cross. That, my friends, is the power of the resurrection. The cross cured you and me of what killed us, namely sin, but God did not leave us in the grave, simply cured of the disease. That is not how he left us. Rather, in Christ's resurrection, he gave us new life in him. Eternal life that begins the moment we believe. And friends, the life of Christ is called eternal life because the only thing that can kill us has been crushed to death at the cross. It's eternal life because nothing else can kill us. Sin has been eradicated and dealt with at the cross. And if sin has been completely punished and stripped of its power, what do you and I have to fear? What do we have to fear? Christian, you have already died with Christ. And through faith in him, you were raised with Christ. And the life that you and I live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. That's also Galatians 2.20. So thank God for the cross where our sins were dealt with once for all, but thank God all the more for the resurrection which guarantees our life with and in him. And provides the power to live both this life and the life to come. Friends, no one can live the Christian life apart from Christ himself in you. If you find the Christian life difficult to live, it's because you are trying to live it in the energy of your flesh rather than saying to Christ himself, I can't do it, you need to do it through me. 
The same way that a branch is attached to a vine and bears the fruit that the vine produces. Nobody gives credit to the branch for bearing fruit. It is the tree who has life, and it's the branch's job to abide. So, Disciples Church, the gospel of Jesus Christ and our salvation is found in the cross and the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection. And that is the story that these three women eventually told. It's the story that the disciples told in Jerusalem, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. Though the disciples had all abandoned him, no one more so than Peter. No one more so than Peter. And let that encourage you, by the way, that the angel said, tell the disciples and Peter. What that means for you and me is that God's love for us and his invitation to us remains regardless of the very worst of our behavior. And now that we know of and believe in Christ's death and resurrection, it is our turn to tell. Not just that these events happened, but why they matter more than any other event, events in history. So there are two Greek words that I have tattooed on either side of my wrist here. And I got them. They were my first tattoos, and I, I got them so that I would be personally reminded of their significance, but also so that I would have a story to tell. Because these two words are not written in English, people will see it and often ask me, what do those words say and what do they mean? Well, I am glad you asked. <laughs> it happens all the time. The first word here on the inside of my wrist is tetelestai, which means it is finished. The words that Christ called out from the cross, declaring that sins were forgiven once for all, that the barrier between us and God was no more, that nothing more needed to be done for us to have eternal fellowship with him, and that there is an eternal cure for what killed us both spiritually and physically. That's what tetelestai means. And the second word is anesti, right up here. And it means risen. Jesus died and accomplished all of those things, but he didn't stay in the tomb. He rose again. And because he rose, those who believe in him, love him, trust him, and follow him will rise too. Cured of the disease of sin and its consequence and given new life for both now and eternity. An empty tomb, an angel of heaven, and eyewitnesses testify to this incredible truth. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Now, go and tell. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our hearts are just full as we consider what you have given us in your Son. 
that which we needed most, we did not ask for, but you provided it anyway. Just like a good father would. Remind us today and always of the extraordinary cost of our salvation and the unspeakable grace that made it possible. Keep us from trying to add to the finished work of our crucified yet risen Savior. Instead, let us rest in Him, abide in Him, and depend upon Him for all that we need for life and godliness. Then, let us go and tell of His death and resurrection, recognizing that it is not we who save or change anyone. We cause no one to believe. Only you can do that. Let us go and tell who Jesus is and what He has done to those who need to be reminded of it, as well as those who have not heard it many of whom live and work and play among us. There is no more significant thing that we can do or say. Give us opportunity, give us courage, and give us joy as we do so. Remind us of all that we have learned and come to understand through Mark's gospel. We are incredibly grateful to have his written record of the words and acts of Jesus, our risen Lord. And it is for his name and his sake we pray. Amen.